Does the end matter? I think it matters. I think perhaps now for all of us, we would say it matters. I think it matters to God. And because it matters to God, then it should matter to us. I think it matters that we understand what God has said about the end of what God has told us. And in a sense, I would agree with this. It's really the whole point of everything else, isn't it? It's the whole point of the beginning. It's the whole point of the middle. The end is as divinely designed as the beginning, and God has given us massive amounts of revelation from Scripture about the future. So it has to matter to us. God filled the Bible with prophecy. Those prophecies that have been fulfilled and so much prophecy still yet to be realized. John MacArthur writes concerning all of that. Did God do this but somehow mumble? Did He do it and somehow muddle it so hopelessly that the high ground for Bible students and the high ground for theologians is to recognize the muddle and abandon the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture on that subject? Is that what God wanted us to do? To look at it and say, oh, I I can't figure this out. Let's forget it. Well, here's our premise. I believe God wants us to understand. I believe He's told us what we need to understand in ways that we can understand it. And if it doesn't mean what it says and everybody's got a different view, then nobody has the authority ever concerning the way it all ends to say, this is true. But it is possible to say this is true. Are we supposed to become comfortable with the notion that the hard and fast and true principles of Bible interpretation have to be set aside when we approach prophetic texts? But that's essentially what we are being asked to do by those who embrace a figurative, symbolic, metaphorical, allegorical interpretation of these texts. But I continue to insist, and it has been a conviction of mine now for many years, I, just anecdotally, um, I've been preaching for almost 30 years now. When first given the opportunity to preach regularly on Sunday evening, um, I already had been informed well enough by good examples that expository preaching was the approach that, that the Bible was written to be treated as, take it as it's written. And so my task was to pick what you preach. Like, what am I going to preach? And my first opportunity to preach series Sunday evenings over at uh, Cave Mill Baptist Church. Well, I picked Daniel. What a fascinating story. Until you hit the prophecy part, Right? And I had, to, um, I had to learn right away how hard Bible study can be when you don't yet know what you need to know to study the Bible. <laughs> um, but it birthed in me a conviction uh, around the perspicuity of Scripture and that God has not kept such important things hid away in obscurity. Normal, natural Literal interpretation is the only way to ever stop the abuse of Scripture and the rise of heresy. 
It's the only way any of us can ever arrive at the truth. As soon as you abandon that, it's fair game for anybody's craziness. Katie, bar the door. And the church, in 2,000 years, has seen some incredible aberrations. If we're going to change the rules of interpretation, there should be a footnote in the chapter inspired by God and the authors of Scripture that that tell you it's time to, to apply the new principle. But it's not there. There is no such warning. And a lot is at stake around it. And God knows far better than we do what's at stake. We saw this morning at the beginning, our hope as believers is at stake concerning an understanding of the end. The evidence of God's massive moving in history is at stake as we saw in our jet tour through Revelation. If we can't understand it. And ultimately, His glory is at stake. Because it is the end that displays God and Jesus Christ in all of His intended glory. I'm convinced that He expects us to get it right. That's why He put it in the Bible. And that's why He put so much of it in the Bible. There are two linchpins that anchor prophecy in the Bible. You could certainly recognize them even with a casual reading beginning in Genesis and running through to the end of the, of the book. Two linchpins. Here they are. Israel and the church. Now when we talk about Israel and the church, and we use biblical language, we, we quickly run to an adjective that attaches to those two linchpins. That single adjective that attaches to both of those, Israel and the church, is elect. Israel is elect. The church is elect. And when you recognize elect Israel and the elect church, then you have to recognize God as sovereign. Because it is God who elects. It is God who chooses. And that's it. If you build that framework as a believer, if you remain committed to it as it is revealed in the text of Holy Scriptures, you cannot get your eschatology wrong. It's impossible. So it's these pieces. God who is sovereign. God who elects, who chooses. Israel, God's elect. The church, God's elect. Now, the New Testament is full of references to the church as the elect. And in the Old Testament, we find it's full with reference to Israel as the elect. Isaiah 45, for instance, verse 4, Israel, mine elect, God says. Isaiah 65, 9, mine elect shall inherit it. And again, just so we get this, when you understand God's purpose, that He is sovereign and that He chooses, and when you understand God's choice of Israel and His purpose and His plan for them, and when you understand God's choice of the church, His elect, and His purpose and plan for the church, then you have the foundation upon which all eschatology is built. And you'll get it right. Okay? So to capture the ground we've covered, you can only get God right 
if you see him in his sovereign election. When Moses wanted to get God, see him really, he asked for that privilege. Let me see you. God took Moses, had him, hit him in the cleft of a rock and said, oh, you can't take me full on. I'll pass by. So what did Moses see? Well, Moses saw what he heard. Because that's what God did. He, he spoke to Moses as he passed by. And in his declaration of who he is, God said famously, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. God is not ever understood if you do not understand God as the one who chooses. Now you can only get that right by reading the Bible. And then you'll see it everywhere in the Bible. God's sovereign choice. You can only get Israel right. You can only get the church right. You can only get any of that right if you get it right from Scripture. And you can only get Scripture right if you apply a faithful hermeneutic. If you use valid, fixed rules of interpretation. That's what we've talked about all day. It can't mean anything you want it to mean. It can't mean what is convenient in our minds. It can't mean what we want it to mean so we don't lose. It can only mean what God says. And you cannot possibly understand what God says if you just turn on and off your principles of interpretation willy-nilly. So if you want to understand what the Bible says about the future, then get those things right. The sovereignty of God in election, the promises of that sovereign electing God to those people whom he has chosen, Israel and his church. Return the sovereignty of God in election to its rightful place. Return Israel to its rightful place. Keep the church in its rightful place. And your eschatology just explodes with clarity. Now, when you think about eschatology, there's a little sequence of events that are relatively simple for you to think about. And this is the way the Bible lays it out. And we ran it through out there at lunch, uh, a couple of us. It, it's what we did when we went through Revelation. It's that ordo eschaton. It's the order of the last things. And you just got to get that in your head. Not because I'm telling you, open your Bible, read it, get there in your head. It's pretty simple. Stand here today and look forward. And look around you before you look forward. And what you see around you is the church. You see the church. You see the church and its purpose. You see it in just seven letters written to the seven churches there. You, you see the purpose of the church there as John stood there looking forward in every letter. In every letter. Here was the purpose of the church. Suffer well. Endure to the end and you will be saved. That is the kingdom of God now, the kingdom purpose today. It is seen in the church and it is an enduring kingdom because it has a lot to endure. It isn't a political kingdom as Nathan taught us. It isn't a dominate the world kingdom as Brian has taught us. It isn't victory day for the church. It's endurance. It's perseverance. That's God's plan. That is as God has ordered it, and it is abundantly clear in the New Testament. 
We are going to the Old Testament, but just let me show you this really quickly. I'll do it really fast. Go to Revelation 2 again really, really quickly. Revelation 2, those seven letters. We're looking forward from John's perspective. First thing we come to is the church. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 3, in the church at Ephesus. The end of verse 3. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. You're getting it right. Because you understand your purpose. Look at verse 7. Same church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. Endurance. Perseverance. Verse 10. To the church at Smyrna. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Be faithful unto death. That's when you get the crown of life. The purpose is clear. Verse 17 to the church at Pergamum. If you have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. Chapter 2, verse 19, the church at Thyatira. I know your deeds and your love and faith and servants and service and perseverance. I know about that. I planned it that way. Verse 25, still to that church. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Hold on. He who overcomes and keeps my deeds to the end, verse 26, to him I'll give authority over the nations. I didn't ask you to take authority over the nations. I asked you to hold on and I'll give you authority over the nations. To the church at Sardis in chapter 3 and verse 5, he who overcomes gets the white garments. Verse 10, chapter 3, the church at Philadelphia, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, then I'll keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I knew we'd get a rapture text in there eventually. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. But for you, hold on. Hold on. Verse 19 to the church at Laodicea. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous and repent. Verse 21. Overcome. And then I'll grant you to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Overcomers. How? Like Jesus overcame. Not overcomers in your version. His version. What was his version? The path of the cross. The path of suffering. The path of loss. That's the endurance of the church. That's the perseverance of the saints. That's the confidence of the elect. That's God's purpose for the church. Jesus made it clear, Luke 9, we, we've been camped all around it. What did he say? You want to follow after me? Come on, let's go. And you need to know that you have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. And if your idea is, save my life, well, you're going to lose. But if you, however, are willing to lose your life for my sake, then you are the one who will save it. No cross no crown, no suffering, no victory. We, as Paul would say, fill up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Now, Christ was lacking nothing in the suffering on the cross. He provided everything we need for our salvation. It is finished. But yet, as the body of Christ, there is so much more suffering that must be filled up. And that's our lot. That's our march. That's our position. That's our expectation. It's not a victory march. It's endurance till the end. And that's when victory comes. Through Christ. 
Paul understood the purpose of the church in those terms when he wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5. Just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. We're afflicted, but, but that's for comfort. We're, we're comforted, and when we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we suffer. Paul never imagined any church in any corner anywhere ever would be exempt from this call to a faithful endurance in the midst of suffering. So this is the future from here in the church age. So that simple perspective, the ordo eschaton, I started to say and I got distracted. That's it right there. The church, the rapture of the church, the tribulation, the second coming of Christ to establish the millennial kingdom, then the final judgment, then the eternal kingdom. It doesn't get any more complicated than that. It doesn't get any more simple than that. Those are the parts. And we saw most of that as we threw through, flew through res, uh, uh, Revelation. Now, Brian touched on covenant theology and the extremes to which it can go. But he did not at the same time reject the reality of the promises of God and how incredibly important they are. And we're going to end this morning not with the purpose for the church, which we just covered really quickly, but what is God's purpose for Israel? What does He intend for Israel? Well, simply put, God made promises to Israel. He made covenants with those people. Israel is a people that came out of the loins of a man named Abram, later called Abraham. A people that came out of him and his Children, they all became then known as the people called Israel. And God made promises with them. He made covenants with them, and those covenants defined the nature and the character and the purpose of Israel and largely describe the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which is the final, great, glorious, earthly kingdom. It's wrapped up in the covenants. So the future for Israel is centered on this kingdom, which we've touched on a couple of times today. And while that includes all the redeemed of all the ages, we are there to celebrate with them in glorified form. But this is not about us, it's about them. So the bottom line is this. In the future, there will be a generation of Jews who will come to faith in Jesus Christ collectively as a people, and we'll see that does not mean not individually, and when that happens, Jesus will return to give them His promised kingdom. And the Bible's clear about this, these divine promises and its intention, and let's see if we can get some of that. The notion that it might not be true that they actually get the kingdom, this idea that separates the promises of God seeing Israel's sinfulness and disobedience, which gives them the curses of God. But now the promises of God have been separated. If you disobey God, you'll suffer. And because you did disobey God, you suffer. And with that, you sacrificed all the promised blessings. That notion cannot bear up under the scrutiny of Scripture. Think about it for a minute. Think about that idea. In short, because of Israel's rebellion... She just gets cursing, and 
the church then, because of her, what? Gets all the blessings. Okay, I'm going to say it again. Israel, because of her rebellion, gets all the curses. And the church, because of her, what? Gets all the blessings. What are you going to put in that blank? The church's faithfulness? It's the church's faithfulness where Israel failed that, that is why we're going to get everything that they were promised? Is that what you believe? Is that what the Bible teaches? There's a huge problem with that idea. It's called replacement theology. The church gets everything Israel sacrificed and forfeited by their disobedience. We get all the blessings. Israel just gets the cursings. It's a huge problem and it's a theological problem because it's a grace problem. You see, the promise to Israel of judgment by God was, in fact, owing to their disobedience. God, of course, in His sovereignty, knew that in advance. He knew in advance they would disobey. So there was a promise made knowing in advance they would disobey. Yet, even with the certainty that Israel would fail and that because of her failure she would suffer punishment, God made the promise anyway. So we can ask the question, fundamental to an eschatology, did God not know about their disobedience when He made the promise? No, He's sovereign. That's our first linchpin in a sound eschatology. He's not ever surprised. Ever. Ever. So knowing well their disobedience in advance, He made promises. And what we are asking, what about the promises? What happened to them? Were they never meant for Israel because, in fact, Israel was disobedient and God knew it in advance? We can ask and answer it this way. Were the promises God made to Israel conditioned on their obedience? That's the question. And it's really easy to answer from the Bible. Turn to Genesis 12. We have to do this quickly, lest you fade. The promises of God that relate to Israel's future basically are bound up in three covenants. There are more covenants that we might consider, but there are basically three covenants. The promises of God that relate to Israel's future and purpose bound up in these three covenants. These three covenants are the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. Of course, ushering in the conclusion of it all is the new covenant, which we are co-partakers in with Israel. The first covenant is called the Abrahamic covenant. And we would do well just to get a little bit of taste of this, and it's right there in front of you in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's what's known as the Abrahamic covenant, and something should strike you right away. When you study your Bible, one of the first things you should do is look for repeated words or phrases. Well, there's a repeated phrase there five times in three verses. I will. I will. I will. I will. This isn't some kind of an agreement between God and Abram. This is a unilateral, unconditional promise made by God concerning what He will do as it regards this people. God is simply saying this Abram is what I will do. Now important, there's more detail. Go to chapter 13 and look at verse 14. This is Abraham and Lot. They've been blessed and now they're going to separate. Lot's going to make a bad choice. He wants the city. Always a bad choice to want the city. Okay. 
Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. Look around, Abram, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. Star it, underline it. Got to know this. This is the promise. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise. Walk around the what? Walk around the land. Through its length and its breadth, I will give it to you. What do we have? Same thing we always have. A sovereign God making a choice, choosing Israel, making promises to Israel, to the father of Israel, Abraham. And once again, I repeat myself, and this time I printed it for you. This is not an agreement between two parties. This is a unilateral, unconditional promise made by the sovereign God of the universe. Go to Genesis 15. It's reiterated yet again. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Verse 1, do not fear, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, oh Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said to God, since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who comes from your own body will be your heir. Massively significant in an understanding of the promises of God as it regards Israel. Do you see what Abram's doing? God, I don't know what you're waiting on, but this is not looking good. But that's all right. I got this. I don't have to actually have any children because consistent with the custom of the day, I do have a first order slave named Eleazar. Let's just make him the heir. What did God say? No, because the promise was made to Israel, to you, Abram, and to your offspring. It is not a promise made to Eleazar. So listen to me, Christians. In the same way, these promises made to Israel were not made to the church. We are not Eleazar, and if we were, we're disqualified. I'm not giving it to somebody else. I'm giving it to your child. I'm giving it to your offspring, ethnic Israel. Well, you know what Abraham does next? He offers God another deal. Okay, I get it. It's got to come from me. But you know, the clock is ticking. So me and Sarah, we've talked about this deal. We can have a child from me through Hagar, my slave, which they did. Famously, Ishmael still fighting over that decision. And what did God say? No, no. This promise is not for an offspring just from you. This is a promise from this covenant people drawn together in my name, represented by you and your wife, and you will have a child or there will be no promise. And that child will be called Isaac, the child of, Paul says, promise. It's not going to happen any other way. These promises then aren't going to be transferred to anybody else. God makes that very clear at the beginning when he had two options to transfer them if it just wells, okay, that'll work. No. Look at verse 5. Are you in Genesis 15? 
He took him outside. Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. And then Abram believed the Lord and he reckoned that to him as righteousness, excluding all other options. Abram, will you just believe me? And if so, you will be counted as righteous. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you, there it is again, this land to possess it. This wasn't just a promise for a great nation and a great people. It was a promise for land. It was a promise for terra firma. And Brian referenced Hebrews 11. I encourage you to read that, especially the part about Abraham, who it says of him, when he arrived in the promised land, standing on that dirt that indeed had been promised by God, though not yet occupying the space that God had promised, Abraham says to himself, this can't be all there is. I'm looking for a different city whose builder and maker is God. Abram himself knew not that the land wasn't a part of the promise, but the land isn't the end of the promise. There's something more than just terra firma Israel. There is the heavenly kingdom. And Abram is motivated by that kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. Now, God is serious about this. (laughs) So he extends that promise to the child of promise, Isaac. You can see it in Genesis 26 quickly. It's taking longer than I thought. I must be chasing rabbits. Look at verse 22 of Genesis 26. This is Isaac. Isaac moved away from there and dug another well, and they didn't quarrel over it. So he named it Rehoboth, for he said, At last the Lord has made room for us, and we'll be fruitful in the land. Preceding this, he kept digging wells, and people kept running him off. Well, this time he finally dug a well, and nobody said anything, so great, we're blessed. Well, then he went up from there to Beersheba, And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you. I will multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. And so then Isaac built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. From Isaac we go to Jacob, whose name gets changed to Israel. But here at Isaac, Isaac, not quite as clear on the whole thing as Abraham is. He's pretty insistent, though, on what? Got to have something to do with dirt. And a well. So whenever he got close to the promise, he's digging a well. Go to Genesis 28. And now it's it's Jacob who will be Israel. Verse 3. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may possess the land of your sojournings which God gave to Abraham. Folks, this is just clear. No other people but Israel. No other people but Israel will serve to fulfill the promise unilaterally and unconditionally made from God to those people and it must include the land. God just keeps making these promises. And you note by now, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. These are a bunch of motley men. Sinners, every one of them. Sinful patriarchs, we might call them. Abraham was sinful. Isaac was sinful. Jacob was sinful. But God keeps making the promises because that is His intention. And it does not rely on them. It relies on Him. 
And he will give this people that came out of the loins of Abraham a future and a kingdom and a blessing and a salvation and a land and a seed and a Messiah. And that has never been abrogated. It has never been canceled. Quickly, there's another covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Somebody asked me before we started, are we going to Isaiah? We are going to get there. This, con- this covenant is completely different. It's conditional. It's full of conditions. And Israel fails and fails and fails and fails over and over again to keep their side of the bargain. So what effect does that have? Well, if you go to your New Testament, Paul can sort it all out just beautifully, better than I could sort it out. Listen to Galatians 3.15. Turn there if you want, but I'm going to keep moving. Brethren, he says, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham. That's the Abrahamic covenant. And to his seed. God does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. That is Christ. Now watch what Paul says, verse 17. What I'm saying is this. The law, the Mosaic covenant, came 430 years later. And that covenant, and Israel's failing to keep it, look at it, does not invalidate a covenant previously made by God. Previously ratified by God. So as to nullify the promise. The Mosaic covenant was conditional and Israel failed, but it did nothing to the Abrahamic covenant when they failed. Because if the inheritance, verse 18, was based on the law and Israel's keeping of it, then it wouldn't be based on a promise. (laughs) But God granted it to Abraham by means of a promise, not by keeping the law. How important is that? How huge is that? If you want to get your head around one of those linchpins, which is Israel and God's purpose. Israel can't lose the promise made to Abraham. That covenant isn't set aside by all their violations of the Mosaic covenant. In fact, their keeping of the covenant was never in view. And Paul says in Galatians 3.19, the very next verse, then why the Mosaic covenant? Why the law? It was added, he says, because of transgression, transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. In other words, it was for sin's sake. It wasn't for promise's sake. In Romans 5.20, he says the law came in, the Mosaic covenant, that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that sin that reigned in death Grace would now reign in life. And it is grace that keeps the promises of God, not law. If this were a Baptist church, somebody would say amen. I'm only poking fun at you. Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law, when it did come in, came in to be a tutor to lead us to Christ because we're only going to be justified by faith all along. God's promises... The source of all of our blessings. The source of Israel's blessings. The promises made to them were not conditioned on their keeping of the Mosaic Covenant. The promise made to Israel, can I just wrap it up for you? Had no conditions. None. And therefore God is bound to keep them. And he binds himself tightly to them. 
And he will keep them. We don't get the promises of God because we deserve them. And Israel doesn't stand to benefit from the promises of God because they deserve them. It's grace that rests in the promises of God. One of the most gripping things that R.C. Sproul ever said as an impact to me in his, in his way was that there is a fundamental problem with Christianity and that it always goes to the cross. It always goes to the cross. It always goes to the cross. And it fails to see that that cross was planted in something. The promises of God. That's, that's huge. It's massive. It's a truth which many Christians will live their whole lives and gain eternity in heaven not having known. There was something before that cross that forced the cross. God's promises. Now turn to Isaiah. Chapter 44. I just quickly want to give you Isaiah's perspective on this promise, specifically the promise of an earthly kingdom which God made to Israel. In Isaiah chapter 44, we're going to drop in. Uh, You'll sink right up. Even though it is prophetic. Verse 6 Thus says the Lord God, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts I am the first, and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. Let's just start there with the promise. And let them declare. To them, the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place because I made that promise. Come on, step up. Who's going to tell God what he's inclined and in fact bound to do based on the fact that he established this nation? Don't tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. What is that? First linchpin, sovereign God. And then Isaiah lays out the path. He lays out the path. And the path runs through the seed. The seed of the suffering servant. We saw it this morning. You remember it? Isaiah 53? Despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like the one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Rejected, despised, crucified. Well, there goes the promise. Oh, no, no, no. That's the path to the promise. (laughs) Oh, it's nullified now. It belongs to the church now. They killed him. No, no. That's the path. Isaiah looks ahead, past the humiliation. He looks past the rejection. He looks past the judgment of the nation Israel for their rejection. He looks all the way into the future. And and he arrives in Isaiah chapter 60. Chapter 60. Verse 1. This Israel that rejected their Messiah. God says, Arise. 
shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see, they all gather together, they come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried in the arms and then you will see and be radiant and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. What an incredible picture. What is he talking about? Israel in the land. What preceded it? Darkness that settled upon the people just like we saw in Revelation. The tribulation that preceded this glorious elevation and establishing of Israel. In all of her glory, Israel rising as a phoenix from the depths of rejection. Lift up your eyes and see, God says, this is where you belong. Because you are the chosen of God. You're in that kingdom now, Isaiah is saying. In that kingdom. A kingdom populated, Isaiah would say, with long lifespans. So that if you, if you um, uh, died at a hundred, you'd be treated as a baby. It stretches for a thousand years where the, the mandate to be fruitful and multiply becomes be very fruitful and very multiplying. Nations are spread from that beginning in this millennial kingdom, and all those nations owe their existence to Israel. They all come to Israel. And God says, simply says through Isaiah, open your eyes, Israel, and see that I will keep my promises. I always keep my promises, and your heart will thrill and rejoice. Now, here's the question. Will God do that only on the basis of His promise? You're just Israel, so you're just in. No, that's Zionism. That's a heresy all its own. You're just in because you're Israel. Oh no. As Paul teaches us in Romans 9, not all Israel is Israel. No, this Israel, this elect Israel, which will gain this, will only gain it. Not because they're circumcised in the flesh. But because they're circumcised in the heart. So from whence does such a heart change come? I mean, it is true that God will never turn His back on His promises, but don't ask Him to turn His back on His holiness either. Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 9 answers the question. And in that day, Zechariah writes, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. That's the tribulation preceding all of this. Judgment of the nations. Okay, so now Israel's automatically in? No. Next verse, verse 10, Isaiah, uh, Zechariah 12. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And in that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadrimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of 
Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. National revival through repentance and grace is the only way that Israel will in fact enjoy the blessings of having been God's elect. And He will do that as certainly as He was the one who made the promise. And as Brian reminded us, this is ground in covenant, but not some nationalistic, everybody gets in because, well, good for you, you're a Jew. Oh, no, no. Individually, do you see it? Each individual who repents Verse 1, next verse, it's in chapter 13. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. That's it, friends. Salvation always and only by grace through faith promised and poured out by God freely. And Israel will be restored and God's holiness will be vindicated. And their salvation, just like our salvation, rests in the grace of God, which, which was provided by the Son of God, who they killed. Back to Isaiah quickly. This millennial kingdom. Chapter 60 and verse 10. Foreigners will build up your walls and their kings will minister to you, for in my wrath I struck you. And now in my favor I have had compassion on you. What a beautiful picture of God. Your gates will be opened continually. They'll not be closed day or night so that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. Verse 15, whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I'll make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. Chapter 61, verse 7, instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. Chapter 62, verse 1. For Zion's sake, that's Israel, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like the brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness, which... Go back to the promises was always God's intention. Always God's intention that you would be a light to the rest of the world. All the kings will see your glory and you'll be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will designate. Don't ask me what it is. You'll also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It will no longer be said to you, forsaken. Nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate. But you will be called, my delight is in her. And your land, married. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Is this incredible? Does this not just stir your heart? Verse 11, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He's back in chapter 53 and the benefits of Christ's death. 
And they will call them, get this, we're done right here. The holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called, sought out a city not forsaken. Because as we we have clearly seen today, every other city ever will be forsaken. A city not forsaken because God keeps His promises. A thousand years of incredible delight for Israel. And as adopted into the faith of Abraham, we are there ruling and reigning and rejoicing that our God is their God and He is faithful. And that's the final earthly kingdom. It's brought about by God because He has to. Because He sealed Himself to them with the promises He made. It isn't brought about by the church. It isn't for the church per se. It's for Israel. And yet there is still more I wish we had time. Revelation 21, a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth and a holy city and a voice that cries, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and He will dwell with them and they shall be His people and God Himself will be among them. And He'll wipe every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because all of those first things have passed away and the one who sits on the throne says behold I am making I mean that's today that's that's bullseye today I am making all things new. And then he said to John, you should write this down. That's what he said. Write. Three times in Revelation, John has to be told to write. You know why? Because he gets caught up in it all. (laughs) And Jesus has to say to him, hey, I brought you here to write this down. Write this down, John. Because these words are faithful and true. Faithful and true. Words of blessing. Words of promise. Words not contained in obscurity, but revealed in revelation. Words to be read. Words to be understood. The way the rest of the Bible is read and understood. And by that understanding, we live in this present hope. That's it. I'm done. 